the Jodcast, bringing back the Jodrell Beard, with Megan Argo, Adam Avison, John Field, Melanie Jandra, Leo Huckvale, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast, June 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Mark, and presenting with me today are Leo and Adam. Hello. Hello. And I'm going to go straight over to Adam for an explanation of that witty comment which I just made about beards. Okay, so um, the three of us sat around the table recording this all have beards, which reminded me of when I was an undergraduate quite a few years ago. It seemed that all astronomers from Jodrell had a big, massive beard. Now, the new member staff don't have beards, so we're bringing it back uh, with the Jodcast. We should point out that... Um, Several people in the list of names, specifically Megan and Melanie, do not have beards. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to attach false ones or something. Yeah. <laughs> Before we start the rest of the show, I should just apologise for the fact that we had last year's Ask an Astronomer in the previous episode, May 2011 Extra, rather than May 2012. Uh, that's been rectified now. It was kind of all our faults, really, that that ended up going in and no one noticed. Uh, but because they're not here to defend themselves, we're just going to blame Christina and Tim. Good idea. <laughs> so thank you to those in the forum who pointed that out. In this episode, we've still got plenty of interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting for you to enjoy. We'll have Patrick Sutton telling us about gravitational wave detection with LIGO, Dr Antonio Chrysostomu and Dr Mark Thompson talking about the submillimeter instrument SCUBA-2, and Professor James Dunlop on submillimeter galaxies and the instruments used to observe them. And we find out what you can see in the June night sky with Ian Morrison and John Field. But first, before all of that... Here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, superflies on sun-like stars, speedy Martian sand dunes, and a decision on the site for the square kilometre array. Solar flares are energetic but short-lived eruptions in the atmosphere of the sun. Most of the time they barely affect the Earth, but occasionally one heads in our direction and is strong enough to cause aurora and affect satellites. Some stars have been observed to produce flares which are much more energetic, but, up to now, very few so-called superflares have been detected on solar-type stars, making detailed studies impossible. Now, using enormous amounts of data collected by the Kepler satellite, a team of researchers led by Hiroyuki Maihara at Kyoto University have carried out a study of 365 superflares on 148 solar-type stars, making meaningful statistical studies of the phenomenon possible for the first time. The most energetic flare on record from our own sun is known as the Carrington event, which occurred in 1859, a flare which left a detectable trace in polar ice cores on the Earth. But even this event was ten times weaker than the weakest superflares observed on other stars, some releasing as much as ten million times as much energy as the Carrington event. Polar ice cores show no evidence of stronger flares from our own Sun over the last 2,000 years, while the Kepler data shows that, for the sample of stars in the survey, a superflare occurs on a solar-type star once every 350 years on average. The data also show that superflares occur less frequently on slower-rotating stars, and more often on cooler stars. Brightness variations in the stars which displayed superflares also suggest that they have much larger sunspots than our own sun. Since sunspots and starspots store magnetic energy, the superflares can be explained by large regions of starspot activity. Faster rotating stars display more active magnetic fields, and are generally younger than slower rotating stars, and these results suggest that superflares occur more frequently on fast-rotating solar-type stars younger than the sun. Superflares on stars similar in age to the Sun occur less frequently, but release similar amounts of energy. Aside from sunspot activity, one of the theory for the cause of stellar superflares is the magnetic interaction of the star with a so-called hot Jupiter, a large gas giant planet in orbit very close to the star. 
However, these new results from the Kepler data suggest that such a mechanism is unlikely, since, despite looking, not a single exoplanet has been found orbiting any of the 148 stars which displayed superflares. Kepler makes accurate measurements of stellar brightnesses, looking for the characteristic dimming caused by a planet passing between us and the star, but not every exoplanet will pass directly in front of the star. The probability of a transit is about 10%, averaged over all possible orientations of the planet's orbit. So, if hot Jupiters were responsible for the flare activity seen in this survey, Kepler ought to have detected around 15 of them. Since none were found, it seems that superflares caused by planetary interactions are rare. Over the last couple of years, images from the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, or HiRISE, on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, have shown many spectacular features on the Martian surface, including clear evidence of wind erosion, sand dune formation, and seasonal avalanches. Now, in a paper published in Nature on the 17th of May, a team led by Nathan Bridges of Johns Hopkins University have found evidence for ongoing large-scale migration of sand dunes, not too different to dune migration seen on the Earth. Mars has a much thinner atmosphere than the Earth, so high wind speeds, needed for the surface movement of material, are much less frequent and generally weaker than on our own planet. Sand dunes on the Earth are seen to migrate, with the entire volume of a dune being overturned as the wind blows the sand along. Although sand dunes have been known about on Mars since the days of the Viking spacecraft, it has long been debated whether they are currently active, or relics left over from a time when the atmosphere of Mars was thicker and the winds were stronger. Now, images of a region known as Nilipatera, taken three years apart, have shown evidence that entire dunes, some as thick as 60 metres, are migrating across the surface of the planet at rates not much slower than those measured in sun dune fields on the Earth. This result is surprising, since the wind speeds measured by landers on Mars rarely reach high enough to initiate the large-scale transport of sand. One solution may be that local small-scale topography may be able to generate sufficiently large localised winds. Another factor is the lower gravity of Mars, meaning that, once particles are lifted by the wind, they stay airborne more easily than they would on the Earth. Another surprising result is that the formation timescale for these dunes is much less than the timescales of climate fluctuations on the planet, implying that these dunes are not relics from a time when Mars had a thicker atmosphere, but that they could have formed under current climatic conditions. There are, of course, many questions left to be answered, not least whether the level of activity seen in the Nilipatera region is typical of dune regions on Mars, or whether it is unusually active. Further studies of other regions on Mars, utilising the same careful image comparison techniques used by this team, should help answer some of these questions. And finally, after many years, several meticulous site surveys and thousands of pages of detailed reports, Friday, May 25th saw the long-awaited result of the site selection process for the world's largest radio telescope, the Square Kilometre Array. And, rather than having one single location, the telescope will now be split across two continents. After an initial international call for bids to host the telescope, the options were eventually narrowed down to two sites, Southern Africa and a joint bid by Australia and New Zealand. In both cases, the core of the telescope, consisting of a large proportion of the total number of antennas, would be constructed in a remote location away from as much man-made interference as possible, such as radio, television and mobile phone signals, with other groups of antennas built at a number of locations spanning distances of several thousand kilometres. The project will be the largest radio astronomy facility on the planet, and will ultimately consist of three different types of antennas, each type covering a different part of the radio band. The dual site option, selected by the SKA's international board, involves building different types of antennas in the two different locations, which, since the different technologies will operate independently, makes use of the existing infrastructure at the two candidate sites where precursor telescopes have already been under construction for a couple of years. The first phase of the project, SKA-1, will see 180 dishes added to South Africa's Meerkat precursor telescope, 
forming a telescope with a narrow field of view but a high sensitivity, while 60 dishes will be added to ASCAP, the Australian precursor, forming an array with a wider field of view but lower sensitivity, designed to carry out faster surveys of the sky. SK-1 also includes many thousands of dipole antennas, distributed over the Australian site, forming an array working at low frequencies. By incorporating the existing precursor instruments, the completed SKA Phase 1 will have greater capabilities than originally planned. The decision was welcomed by both of the bidding countries, although some onlookers have raised concerns over cost increases that may be incurred by constructing a dual-site telescope. However, due to the already existing infrastructure at both sites, and the need for separate cores for each of the components anyway, operating across two sites will add no more than 10% to the projected cost of Phase 1, according to John Womersley, chair of the SKA Board of Directors. For Phase 2 of the construction, expected to be completed around 2024, all the dishes and the mid-frequency aperture arrays will be built in Southern Africa, while all of the low-frequency antennas for Phase 1 and Phase 2 will be built in Australia. Thanks for that, Megan. And now, continuing the interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting, here's Dr Patrick Sutton telling me all about gravitational wave detection using LIGO. Now, you've probably heard a bit on the Jogcast before about uh, detecting gravitational waves using pulsar timing arrays, but there are other completely different projects to detect gravitational waves. And just now I'm talking to Patrick Sutton of Cardiff University, who works with a project called LIGO. So could you tell us a little bit about LIGO? Sure. LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. So LIGO is part of a network of laser interferometer instruments designed to detect gravitational waves from space. Um, Laser interferometer, briefly, is a device, it's actually quite an old piece of technology. It's very similar to instruments used in the famous Michelson-Morley experiment of special relativity fame more than 100 years ago. The idea is that you pass laser beams down long vacuum tubes where they're bounced off of mirrors at the far end of the tubes. Uh, The laser beams return to their origin and recombine and produce an interference pattern. And if a gravitational wave passes through the detector, it causes a stretching and squeezing of space. It changes the distance that the laser beams have to move as they travel back and forth along the arrows, and that changes the interference pattern. And so we use uh, very large instruments of this, of this kind to try to detect gravitational waves. Uh, at the moment, there are uh, a network of these devices operating, two in the United States, the so-called LIGO detectors. There's a British-German detector called GEO in Germany, a French-Italian collaboration called Virgo in Italy, and also the Japanese are building a detector uh, called CAGRA. So would you envisage like a large gravitational wave comes along and does something to all the detectors at the same time and they can all verify each other? Or are you picking up more of a background of of gravitational waves? Having the network of detectors all seeing a consistent event is is key. You can imagine the gravitational wave as being kind of like vibrations on on a rubber sheet. So the space that we live on isn't rigid or fixed like the surface of a table. It's more like a surface, say, of a trampoline. And if a catastrophic event happens and the universe of star explodes or black holes collide... It causes ripples that, that vibrate, uh, vibrations essentially on the sheet that travel over from the source. And so the detectors that we have around the world are looking for these vibrations as they pass through. And the, the main difficulty, the reason we haven't detected any yet directly, is because the gravitational waves are very, very weak. They're predicted to be very small fluctuations in, in space. Just to give a sense of scale, the, the detectors that we use are three or four kilometers long. And the amount that one of these detector arms would be stretched or squeezed by a strong gravitational wave might be a thousandth the diameter of a proton. And so you're looking for a stretching or a squeezing over three or four kilometers of one one thousandth the diameter of a proton. You have to be able to measure that kind of small change. And, I mean, a proton is 
something like 10 to the minus 15 meters. Right. So 10 like to the minus 18 so. meters are the light scales that the, the, the largest light scales we could expect to see a gravitational wave effect on. It just sounds impossible. How could you? How could you? It's challenging. <laughs> it's challenging. But this is where the, the, having several detectors is key because any kind of environmental disturbance can easily swamp that effect. Uh, traffic, ground motion due to distant earthquakes, wind, waves on on the ocean shores, um, weather. So we need to have multiple detectors at different locations on the Earth that all see the same consistent gravitational wave signal to be sure that it wasn't caused by some noise or some glitch in in an individual detector. Can you use the periodicity of the wave as well to to help bring out the signal? Yes, so for, uh, in particular, our most promising class of sources are are what are called compact binaries. So if you have, let's say, a pair of black holes or neutron stars in a very tight orbit around one another, that system will emit gravitational waves, and the gravitational waves will bleed energy out. And so the orbit will decay, and the two objects will spiral in closer and closer together until eventually they merge. And this gives you a really strong gravitational wave signal. That process for a pair of neutron stars, for example, will, will last for several seconds in the sensitive band of our detector. So the signal sweeps up in frequency, and, and, and for at least several seconds in current detectors, you'll be able to, to see the signal. And so you can essentially add up the signal over its many cycles to dig that signal out of the noise. Okay. Since we've probably heard before about pulsar timing, how does the, an interferometer, I suppose, do the same job as a, as a pulsar timing array, or how does the pulsar timing array do the same job as the LIGO detector? So detectors like LIGO, these ground-based detectors that I work with, um, as I said, they, they operate by passing a, a light pulse from a central point down a long vacuum tube arm and back again, and essentially monitoring how long it takes the light beam to get out and back, comparing with two orthogonal arms. And you can think very loosely of a pulsar timing ray as being kind of like that, where you replace the arms and the distant mirrors by the pulsars. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't send a beam out and back. The pulsar just regularly emits beams that, and sends the beams to us. So, so you can sort of have this picture in your head of the, of the pulsars being many arms of interferometers out in out of space. They're sending us these, these timed pulses that we can use to detect at the gravitational waves. The reason we want both is the same reason that you want different kinds of telescopes observing the heavens, you know, radio, x-ray, and optical, and so on. They're looking at different frequencies. So a ground-based gravitational wave detector is most sensitive around 100 hertz up to 1,000 hertz motion. So, so objects that are vibrating or moving with periods of milliseconds up to a second mm-hmm. are the, the sort of signals that the ground-based detectors will be sensitive to. Pulsar timing arrays observe over very long time spans, and so they naturally see very low-frequency events down around 10 to 100 nanohertz, systems with periods of around a year. And so you can think of it as being analogous to for example, pulsar timing rays being like a, a radio telescope, looking at lower frequency systems or lower frequency signals, and then the ground-based detectors like LIGO being more like your X-ray or gamma-ray telescope observing the other end of the spectrum. And there are proposals for other kinds of gravitational wave detectors, such as a space-based NGO or LISA detector. That would sit in the middle and be sort of like your optical telescope, which would be observing at, say, millihertz frequencies. And so the different kinds of gravitational waves detectors would be complementary to each other because they'd be observing different sections of the spectrum of gravitational waves. And this would be a completely new spectrum, a completely new way of observing the universe then? Yeah, so a completely new channel that would be complementary to what's to uh, electromagnetic observations. So uh, in particular would be tending to observe things that are very dark and hard to see with a traditional telescope. So, so our best sources for gravitational waves are likely to be black holes, and you can't directly see those at all with, mm-hmm. with photons. 
but you can't observe them directly in gravitational waves because you're looking at the fluctuations in, in space-time mm-hmm. from, the, from the black holes. And with LIGO, is it um, still being improved all the time? And would you expect a signal to be seen soon, or is there any way of putting a handle on when it might happen? Sure. So we've been operating the detectors for the last couple of years in what was called the initial design phase, um, where they had a sensitivity that was good enough that you might see a gravitational wave if you're lucky, but we, it wasn't a guaranteed thing. And at the moment, the detectors are being upgraded to what are called their advanced design configurations, and they're set to begin operations in 2015. And so in, in the next five years or so, as those detectors turn on again with a, a much higher sensitivity, we expect to start seeing the first dark detections for those. So you've been learning about the machinery and how to interpret the data and stuff? Exactly, learning how we try to disentangle these very weak signals from our glitchy background noise uh, and, and how to use the observations from multiple gravitational wave detectors together and also how to, how to work in concert with traditional electromagnetic instruments and neutrino detectors and other ways of, of looking at the sky. One thing I really wanted to ask you about from your talk was uh, this event called the Big Dog I was looking at it thinking, oh my goodness, they found a gravitational wave and I hadn't heard about it. Could you explain what happened there? Sure. So, so this was something that got us pretty excited. Um, the last big data-taking run for LIGO and its partners was 2009-2010. And uh, on September 16th, 2010, very near the end of the, the data-taking, actually, um, one of our online processors, uh, searching the data for gravitational waves, saw a very distinctive signal that looks uh, like what you would expect from a pair of black holes or, or a black hole and a neutron star spiraling into each other. Uh, it's a very distinctive chirp signal that, that if you listen to the data, if you play it over your earphones, you can actually hear this whoop sound okay. that looked picture perfect. Um, and so, so we got very excited. Um, in fact, we had uh, a partnership set up with some uh, observing partners with, with optical and telescopes, radio telescopes and so on, who actually took pictures of the sky looking for an electromagnetic counterpart. This would say a black hole neutron star merger you might expect to see a gamma ray burst, for example. And so the reason we called it the big dog is because the, the online process of the family event used the information from the three detectors that were operating to try to triangulate the sky position, and it was consistent with the Canis Major. Ah, I see. It's the nickname of Big Dog. Uh, so uh, so, so we, we studied this event very, very carefully. A large team of people followed it up with telescopes. Uh, got so far as to actually drafting a publication uh, announcing this as a, as a very strong uh, candidate for gravitational wave event. When at our collaboration meeting six months later, the event was revealed to be part of a, what we call a blind injection challenge, a, a test wherein a small team of instrumentalists with authorization had, had placed a, a simulated signal into the data streams to test our ability to detect the signal and to test our detection protocols. So you passed the test? We, we passed the test. We, we were aware that there was such a thing as a blind injection challenge, so, so there was always the possibility in our minds that this was a simulated event. But for a few months, it was a very exciting time. A lot of, a lot of people working very late nights to... Uh, to get the most out of the data. So if it happens for real, then you're going to have to go around everybody and just look in their eyes and say, was this you or is this the real thing this time? It, it was a very successful experience, actually, because it, it really helped us work through all the nuts and bolts and, and the technical challenges of how you actually go about securing you know, confident detection. And so it was a, it was a great exercise. But uh, uh, it, it, was a, it was enough work that we all look forward to having a, a few years before we face that challenge. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, very exciting. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Mark. Thanks for that, Mark. 
And now here's Mark again talking to Dr. Antonio Chrysostomou and Dr. Mark Thompson about Scuba 2. I'm interviewing Dr. Antonio Chrysostomou and Dr. Mark Thompson, who are respectively um, from the Joint Astronomy Centre in Hawaii and the University of Hertfordshire. So there was a whole session about an instrument called Scuba 2, which is part of the James Clark Maxwell Telescope. So could you tell us a bit about what that does? Scuba 2 is a, is a submillimeter camera. It's uh, been built uh, in the last uh, project that took about 10 years to, to come to fruition uh, because it was using state-of-the-art technology on three different um, lines, really. There's the, uh, the detectors themselves, the first time that we can actually build now uh, an array of pixels which are sensitive enough to submillimeter radiation. I'll say something about what that is. Um, and also the, the fridge that will be used to keep the instrument cold is also state-of-the-art. And so all of that kind of technology kind of came together. It was a high-risk, high-return type of project. Uh, in the last few years now, we finally got onto the, onto the telescope and pointing at the sky over the last six months or so, and it's getting some great results. Okay, so the, the sub-millimetre band is something that, I guess for a long time, it wasn't very easy to do observations in, but that's now becoming... More and more practical. Yeah, the, the submillimeter is very difficult to observe from, certainly from the ground. You know, it's impossible. You're not going to do that because um, there's too much water in the atmosphere, and, and water is the principal um, molecule which is obstructing the radiation from, from reaching the, the ground, which is why space is probably the best way to do submillimeters, but it's also the most expensive way of doing it. Mm. The other option you have is to go very high onto a, a mountain. Uh, to minimise the amount of atmosphere there is above the telescope. And such a place you find in, uh, in Hawaii, which has this uh, tall volcano. It's a, uh, what they call a sheer volcano, which means it's got very liquid, very fluid lava, um, which is how the volcano is formed. It's about 14,000 feet high. Uh, but because it's uh, what, they, what they term a sheer volcano, means it's actually quite easy to, to build a road and, and, and climb up it. Truck, you know, with a, a big truck to, to transport all the material up there uh, to build your observatories. Um, so really, what you need is is that height. The other thing that you need is is, is a kind of a weather system which will keep uh, moisture from coming up from from the ground, you know, where the tropical rainforests are. And we kind of have that in Hawaii with kind of a really good inversion layer below. So above the mountaintop, it's really very very dry, one of the driest places on the on, on the planet, which is ideal for doing some millimetre astronomy. I see. So, Mark, maybe I could ask you as someone who will be using Scuba 2. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the submillimetre is between radio and infrared, so what does it tell you particularly about astronomy that we can't find out from other wavelengths? Well, it's really... Um, it's where radio astronomy and infrared astronomy collide, essentially, and, and um, objects that emit in a submillimetre are generally very cold. So it gives us a window on, on the cold universe, the universe that's maybe only 10 or 20 degrees above absolute zero. And primarily what we observe in Scuba 2 is dust, uh, not common or garden household dust, but dust that uh, is uh, created in space from either supernovae or from uh, evolved stars. And uh, the dust at 20 Kelvin is, is really involved in, in star formation, forming new stars uh, and galaxy formation and, and evolution. So it gives us the whole picture across the universe from the, you know, some of the first galaxies to form all the way to the very most uh, recent stars that have formed in our own Milky Way. And will it be sensitive enough, then you're saying, to look quite far back into the universe's history? Oh, well, the submillimeter is very unique because there's uh, uh, an effect called uh, negative K correction. 
And that basically means that um, if you're looking at a galaxy in a submillimeter, particularly at 850 microns where SCUBA 2 works, the galaxy is essentially the same brightness almost anywhere in the universe, from a redshift of, say, around 1 to a redshift of 10. How strange. It it works basically because if you you have a galaxy and you redshift that galaxy, uh, one of the things you do is uh, you, you make the galaxy fainter. The other effect that you have is redshifting it. You're moving the emission from the blue end of the spectrum to the red end of the spectrum. And the two effects combine to essentially mean that at 850 microns, the galaxies are constant brightness. Okay, but you may not be observing the same uh, original wavelengths as no, you as No, you, no at, say a, a redshift of a few, you're observing um, emission in the far infrared that's been redshifted uh, into the uh, 850 micron band, and that emission is generally much brighter, and that's what levels everything off. So SCUBA2 is great for finding these galaxies, and it's also great for studying uh, star-forming regions in our own galaxy. Excellent. Okay, well, maybe I can just ask both of you what sort of um, projects you think are going to be coming out of SCUBA2 in the, in the next few years? Well, the, the main science program that we've got in place now, really, over the last few years for SCUBA2 is what we're calling the JCMT Legacy Surveys. Now, these surveys are basically... What they want to do is to, to determine the origins of the, the things that they're studying. And that's uh, all the way from how planets form around nearby stars, these so-called debris disks, um, which some of your listeners might be uh, familiar with, um, to how, how stars form in our galaxy, whether they're low-mass stars in our, in our neighbourhood or high-mass stars uh, further, further out. Um, and then we move on to the local galactic neighbourhood, away from the Milky Way, trying to understand the how gases and dust kind of work together in a nearby spiral galaxies or elliptical galaxies. So we have a project to do that. And then moving even further back, as we've just heard, uh, moving in the cos- more cosmological distances, a high redshift to see how the early galaxies in the universe first formed. And as, we, as Mark just told you, you know, because of uh, this, this, this correction, that you know, all, all galaxies are more or less of the same brightness through, through our cosmological history back to you know, just after the Big Bang, the submillimeter is really, really good at finding these things, and then you can follow up with other instrumentations, but you need the submillimeter to find where, where these galaxies are through history. Yeah. So as you're going back in history, you're looking at progressively warmer things? Is that a reasonable thing to say? Or? Uh, not necessarily. It's not the fact that they are warmer. Um, they are maybe more active. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know from what we have learned from Scuba 2's uh, predecessor, uh, imaginatively called Scuba, yeah. <laughs> without, the, without the number. Now what Scuba did, what, what one, of its, one of its claims to fame was to discover this population of submillimeter galaxies, as they're called. Actually, some people still call them, refer to them as Scuba galaxies. Uh-huh. What Scuba did was open up this window in the submillimeter to observe these galaxies before there were population of these um, sources just wasn't known, wasn't, uh, we didn't know that these galaxies existed. And so we had this idea of what the star formation history was like through the history of, of, of the universe, and we thought that most of the star formation, most galaxies formed their own redshift of one or something. And uh, it was only when we discovered these uh, submillimeter bright galaxies, and the reason that they are bright in the submillimeter but we could not see them in the uh, optical is because they're basically enshrouded by dust. And because there is so much dust, the light in the optical cannot escape, cannot get out. It's just like a fog. And so that light cannot get out, and so it looks dark in the optical. But because that dust is actually very active in forming stars, Mm -hmm. and we know that from 
studies in the Milky Way, where we study star formation, is that it always happens in these very dark and dense regions. And that's, very, that's true in all cosmological history. So these galaxies have been very active, um, but they were being very active in forming stars in an earlier time, around distance of two or three or four. And so that wasn't known before. It was only when we discovered those with scuba and that we were able to, uh, to kind of basically invent a new uh, research field, which is some millimeter cosmology. Excellent. Is there anything you want to add to that about the program uh, scuba team? Yeah, well, I mean, I can, um, I'm uh, coordinating one of the, the, the legacy surveys, uh, which is called uh, SASI, uh, which stands for the Scuba 2 Ambitious Sky Survey. Right. And uh, we're, we're uh, hoping to uh, make one of the largest area surveys from the ground at this wavelength to uh, look for uh, very cold molecular uh, clouds in the galaxy, uh, which are just on the, the verge of, of forming stars. One of the problems in star formation is that, and particularly in, in massive star formation, is that when a star forms, it immediately alters its environment beyond all recognition. Right. And so trying to understand how these things form means we have to really find the very early stages. And is ideal for that because uh, it's optimised to, to look for cold emission. The, and the other thing is that we're highly complementary to uh, Herschel Space Observatory. We extend the wavelength coverage of Herschel and we have uh, a better resolution uh, so we can see, see sharper details. So, uh, yes, we're very excited to, uh, to be doing this survey and uh, also the fact we're pioneering operations uh, at the JCMT in, um, in wetter conditions than they've uh, generally observed in before. So uh, we're hoping to be bigger, faster and moister. <laughs> Excellent. So you mean to say that you can mitigate the effects of a little bit more water in the atmosphere now? Yes, I mean, one of the things that's gone into Scuba 2 is an awful lot of um, trying to understand the data reduction and how to, uh, to take out the effects of the atmosphere. And uh, Scuba 2 takes data a lot faster than its predecessor. We, we take data at a rate of 200 hertz. So we can track changes in the water vapour and we can solve the atmosphere and we take it out. And so essentially, in moisture conditions, I mean that we just have to look at the thing for longer. Right, we're just doing weather monitoring and you're able to yeah, yeah. take out the effect. We can, yeah, we can take it out. We just need to take a longer exposure. Whereas with scuba, you wouldn't be able to do that. It just was not possible to work in these, these conditions very effectively. So scuba 2 is obviously built on, on what scuba did, but it's taken it quite a bit further. Then. Yes, um, you know, scuba opened up some limited astronomy for, uh, for a lot of uh, for astronomers. But what scuba 2 is doing is because it's effectively we are the first instrument to bring CCD technology to the millimeter, and because of that we can maximize the field of view that the instrument sees through our telescope and so we're able to actually look at a much larger piece of sky with any single exposure where scuba only had a very small kind of keyhole view of the sky so because of that we can actually now survey larger areas in a more efficient manner than we could ever before and so now Survey astronomy, which is something that the optical astronomers and infrared astronomers have had for a number of years, has now opened out to the submillimeter astronomers. And so this is you know, the thing that's making everybody excited now. So we're going to get large populations. We're going to be able to do statistics, you know, proper statistics in the submillimeter, which we haven't been able to do before. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for that again, Mark. And now staying in the submillimeter, Melanie interviews Professor James Dunlop on submillimeter galaxies. Hi, this is Melanie, and I'm with uh, Professor James Dunlop, or as known as Jim. Hi, Jim. Hi, yeah. Um, it's from the uh, University of Edinburgh, and mm-hmm. you gave a very interesting talk today about submillimeter galaxies. Can you tell us more about it, like what's special about them and why we're interested in studying them? 
Okay, so this strange word submillimeter uh, means light, where the wavelength is just a little bit under a millimeter in wavelength, as its name would imply. And we're interested in that because it carries information about star formation back from a time when the universe was very young. The reason it happens, well, young stars give out lots of blue ultraviolet light, but young stars also form in very dense, dusty, dark clouds. And so what happens is that most of that blue ultraviolet light gets absorbed by the dust. This is not dust like in our houses, this is interstellar grains of silicates and carbon. And then that that dust re-emits the energy, it gets warmed up slightly, and then it re-emits the energy in what we call the far infrared, which is like heat, gentle warming, and then as that travels across the universe towards us, the universe expands and the light stretches a little bit more, and by the time it gets here, the light has grown in wavelength to just under a millimeter. And that's the stuff we are trying to detect. So you're seeing the light from the stars or from the dust? From the dust. It's been basically, it's the light that started in the stars, the energy that started in the stars, been reprocessed by the dust into very long wavelength light that's very, very faint and hard to detect. So why is it interesting to look at dust? I mean, it's dust. Well, some people are interested in the dust itself. Some people study interstellar dust to see if there's even the beginnings of the molecules of life uh, in the interstellar medium. In my case, you know, I almost wish the dust wasn't in the way. Uh, we are really, we'd like to see the young stars. We're trying to work out the star formation history of the universe. And we're particularly interested in the time when star forming galaxies were really violent in the early universe. So nowadays we live in a fairly peaceful time. Uh, we're lucky. Our Milky Way has got 100 billion stars in it, but it only forms stars at the rate of two or three suns per year. But 10 billion years ago, stars were forming in galaxies of a thousand suns per year. And so we want to see when the bulk of the stars in the universe formed, and it's just a bad luck that they formed inside dust, and it's a good luck that we can now build telescopes to see this light. How difficult is it to see those galaxies? Because you were saying that it's either galaxies like very far away or a long time ago, so it must be really hard to see. It's really hard to see, so you have to build a big telescope, and it's made even harder that light at these wavelengths is absorbed by and emitted by water vapor in the atmosphere. So in a perfect world, you go into space, and there is a telescope called Herschel that's in space doing observations at similar wavelengths. But we also would like to use a giant telescope because, as you say, the, the objects are far away. We'd like to grab as much of the light as we could. And you can't put a giant telescope into space. It's just too expensive. So the telescope we're using is called the James Clark Maxwell Telescope. It's half British, quarter Canadian, quarter the Netherlands. And it's, it's not in space, but it's kind of as close as we can get to space. We've put it on one of the highest useful mountains in the world. It's on a, a volcano, extinct volcano, we hope, <laughs> uh, called Mauna Kea, which means White Mountain in Hawaii. So that's at 14,000 feet, and when you go to use that, you have to be used to working at half oxygen. And so the hard work in seeing these galaxies is you need a big telescope, you want to be in a high, dry place, and you need to build a detector, a new kind of camera, which can see the submillimeter light. And that's a challenge because you have to cool it down to the, less than a degree above absolute zero, really low temperature, because otherwise the camera itself emits in the wavelength we're trying to see. 
Okay, so that's really cold. I mean, really cold. So it's a technical challenge. That? Well, you do it with a, a thing called a helium dilution refrigerator, which is a, a clever piece of cryogenic physics and engineering that helps you get everything cooled down to just a fraction above absolute zero. So this is like minus 270 degrees Celsius or centigrade. And so you have to do that because otherwise just the general glow of the surroundings swamps any signal that we're trying to get. Okay. So I remember you were saying in your talk that there's kind of two ways of seeing what, what those terminator galaxy could be. Either it could be some old version of what we could see now in like ultra-luminous galaxies, or it could be just one phase of the evolution. Is there any major indication on if it's one or the other? So it's still kind of controversial. I guess that's one thing that makes it an interesting area of research. Um, when these things were first discovered um, with a, a previous version of a submillimeter camera built in the UK called SCUBA, they, they were a bit of a surprise and the only similar objects we knew about in the nearby universe were things called ULOGs, ultra-luminous infrared galaxies. And these seem to be very rare events triggered by violent collisions between galaxies, so-called mergers. And therefore the first instinct was that when we saw these things in the distant universe that they were also driven by these rare mergers. But since then we've learned that back then, so this is like 10 billion years ago out of the 14 billion years available in the universe, we found that back then the whole universe is more active. So it's a bit like Instead of the surprise of finding the Loch Ness Monster nowadays, if you'd gone back to Jurassic Park times, <laughs> it wouldn't have been particularly exceptional. <laughs> and so the analogy is that maybe these things, although we think of them as really freakish events in the present day, quiet, peaceful universe, back then, the impression I have from the data we have is that they were just kind of at the extreme end of, of typical, so herds of brontosaurus instead of the Loch Ness Monster. I see. And how would they have evolved to like give the galaxies we have now? Well, it's been a, it's been a challenge for galaxy formation theories to explain these objects. So the interesting thing is they only seem to have lived for a relatively short period of time, maybe the period of time you can see them is about a billion years in the history of the universe. So there seems to have been an, an era of maximum action. So if you go back further in time with the Big Bang, the universe had no objects in it. It was all hot gas, and then that cooled. And then there was so-called kind of cosmic dark ages. And then the first stars and galaxies started to form, and that's still an interesting area of work. And gradually they built up to produce these monsters, and then these monsters seem to have had some kind of final party where they made stars. And just after that, the interesting thing is they stopped it. And this is not something that's well understood. We now think either that the very act of this final frenzy of star formation maybe ejected a lot of the gas from the galaxies, and therefore they turned themselves off. Or some people think that the black holes that maybe were in the centre of these galaxies blasted out the gas and cleared away the fuel and therefore they turned the galaxy off. So somehow... How would they, they do that? Well, they could do... There's various methods. I mean, there's an interesting issue of feedback in galaxy formation. So the same fuel that drives the growth of the black holes and the stars also produces radiation that can drive away the gas away from the galaxy. So they can stop themselves, basically. And that's not well understood yet. Can I just ask, so how would a black hole emit anything to drive away the gas? Well, the black hole itself isn't really what we're talking about emitting. We're talking about, as, as the gas tumbles down into the black hole, to actually get down into the black hole, it has to lose some energy. 
So if you think of our Earth orbits around the Sun quite safely, but if our Earth started to lose some energy, it would spiral into the Sun. So around black holes, for the gas to actually tumble down and eventually be sucked into the black hole, it has to lose energy sort of en route. So what people believe happens, and there's good observational evidence for this, is that as the gas spirals in, it loses that energy by heat, it radiates it away. So the black hole is powering the radiation because it's trying to tempt the gas to tumble down into it. But it's actually friction in the gas disk that is heating it up that's producing the radiation. And this makes black holes, if they're surrounded by fuel, shine brightly in the young universe and we call these objects quasars, if it's the very big black holes that are powering them. Oh, very cool. And um, what would be interesting to observe to like test those theories? What do you think would be the next step? Well, the next step for this camera, Scuba 2, is having finally got through all the technical challenges and got it on the telescope, we want our money's worth in terms of telescope time. So we've been promised three years to do this big survey of the distant universe, and we're arguing hard for longer than that because it's been a major investment and we'd like to do a survey. The point is, if you just have small images, you might... It's a bit like trying to take a political survey and only visiting a, a, a village in darkest Cheshire or something like that. So you would like a representative chunk of the country to get a good view of political opinion. And so we would like to image a representative chunk of the early universe to just see proper statistics and how common these objects were. And we also are using the Hubble Space Telescope to image the same regions of sky. So once we find these special objects in the submillimeter, we can look at whether they are spiral galaxies or interacting galaxies, see, see what drives these spectacular star formation events. So you can actually see them in other wavelengths than submillimeter? Absolutely. So astronomy is a pretty multi-frequency business these days. So these objects, we have radio imaging, we have X-ray imaging, and the X-rays can tell us if there's a black hole there, actually. And we have this, you know, the beautiful, elegant images you get from Hubble that allow us to actually see what these galaxies look like. So the submillimeter images themselves don't look very exciting. They just look like blobs. But these are special blobs, and then you can go to the, the Hubble and you can look at them and say, right, well, we knew these were dusty galaxies. What's special about them in the optical? Okay. Do we have any information or idea of why they're so special? Well, they seem to be massive. They seem to be the biggest galaxies around at that time. That's pretty clear. And they also seem to be big, gas-rich, star-forming disks. And it does seem as if most of the star formation fueled in the early universe takes place in these spectacular big disk galaxies. I mean, our own Milky Way is a big disk galaxy, but it, it's not nearly as gas-rich as uh, the ones in the early universe were. So do you think it is kind of a, a mandatory step in the evolution of galaxy to go through this kind of massive star forming? It's certainly a mandatory step in the evolution of the most massive galaxies. So the objects we are seeing with Scuba 2 are the top end of the mass scale at this time. Uh, and the interesting thing is, in those days, the most massive galaxies seemed to be the most rapidly star-forming, most violent places in the universe. Nowadays, the most massive galaxies don't look like that at all. They're the most quiet, passive, giant red old elliptical galaxies. So somehow, something dramatic has happened to these objects. So we go from the most massive things being the most violent places in the universe to the most quiescent, old and quiet places. And that may have something to do with this final frenzy of star formation and how they shut themselves down and were left as kind of passive old relics. So a bit like somebody who had a really wild youth 
and then did nothing thereafter <laughs> for the rest of their life. Sadly. Well, well, thank you very much, Jim. And it was a pleasure thank to talk to you. A pleasure to speak to you again, Melanie. Thanks for that, Melanie. Now it's time for that part of the show where we fit in everything we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So first up, you might have heard that on the 5th to the 6th of June, Venus will be crossing the disk of the Sun in a, an event known as a transit. More information on this coming up in the night sky section. If you want to get involved in observing this in part of a worldwide project, Graham Boland sent us an email telling us about his project transit2012.org, which is a social media science project. He's trying to replicate the James Cook experiment of a couple of hundred years ago, calculating the distance to the sun based on observations of the times of when transit enters and leaves the sun's disk from different parts of the world. Essentially, you need to submit to a Twitter hashtag the time you observe Venus entering and leaving the disk of the sun, along with your geolocation, and he's going to calculate the distance to the sun live on his website, so you should check that out and take part. If you want more information on the transit of Venus, you can go to transitofvenus.org, which has some more information on how to observe the sun safely. There's also a link on that website to a free smartphone app, which also allows you to submit your times of observations, and it also has a simulation so you can practice, so you can make sure you get it right. I'm thinking I'm going to try and get up for this. I hope it's not cloudy, but it's going to be about five in the morning um, in our part of the UK that you can see it. But um, I was thinking that, considering the lengths that people like Captain Cook went to, sort of travelling halfway across the world to look at it, maybe getting out of bed at five in the morning isn't too much of a struggle. Just don't go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Staying with the sun, uh, NASA have just released a video from the SDO, which is the Solar Dynamic Observatory, of the sun with enhanced images of the surface of the sun. Now, we're not entirely sure what the enhancement is, but um, the video is pretty spectacular. You can see matter transferring along all the uh, magnetic field lines, and uh, it's very uh, pretty. So we'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes. Moving quite a lot further away from the Sun, um, the Dawn mission, NASA's spacecraft that went to the Vesta asteroid, has had its results released. It's been going around the second largest asteroid in the asteroid belt for almost a year now, having set off from the Earth in 2007, and it's found out some really amazing things about Vesta. It's actually been able to look at where the asteroid's been impacted by things, and it's kind of torn away the surface. It's been able to look at the minerals and things that are inside. And the really interesting thing they've worked out is that Vesta is actually more like a little planetoid. It's sort of got a crust and a mantle and a core. It's not just a homogenous piece of rock. They were actually able to date a couple of the impacts to 1 billion and 2 billion years ago. And these things, obviously, when they happened, chucked up a lot of space debris. And it actually turns out from analysing the materials on Vesta that about 6% of the meteorites on Earth actually come from Vesta, which is an incredible number. And that's not all from the Dawn spacecraft, because having done all this, it's going to set off in August for the largest asteroid in the solar system, which is the dwarf planet Ceres. And it's supposed to arrive there in 2015. So we can expect more revelations about the composition of these bodies in our solar system. And coming right back near to home, there's a space capsule that should be docking with the International Space Station right now as we record on the 25th of May. So hopefully by the time you listen to this, it will have docked successfully. It's called the Dragon Capsule, and it comes from the SpaceX spacecraft, which is the first commercial spacecraft to be used by NASA. That launched a few days ago at the time of recording, and the Dragon Capsule should be getting captured by a robot arm on the ISS as we speak. And there are six astronauts on the ISS, none actually in the Dragon Capsule, but in future 
it should be capable of supporting life. So the era of commercial spaceflight, um, it's it's here. How nervous would you be if you were the guy on the ISS with the remote control control in the arm? <laughs> a terrifying amount of responsibility. They have a lot of training. But I, I imagine still. still pretty nervous. Even closer to the home of the International Space Station, London to be specific, this July, so I'm getting in early with this, from the 3rd to the 8th of July, the Royal Society Summer Science Exhibition will be um, happening and the reason I'm telling you this is because I will be there with a team from the University of Manchester and a joint with a team from the University of Cambridge telling the public all about ALMA. So the Summer Science Exhibition features 21 exhibitors across various branches of science. We've got the science of laughter, how animals see things, and one I'm really looking forward to is uh, robotic football. So there's going to be two teams of uh, robots playing football. So. <laughs> It's going to be very exciting. But on a more astronomy theme, so there's ALMA, so we'll be showing you some cool displays of how ALMA works and some bits and pieces of ALMA. There'll also be a team from Herschel, so Herschel, the Space Observatory, and a team talking about cosmic rays. And I'll be there as well, helping Adam out. And um, though we don't want to give it away, he's found a really cool way to demonstrate how interferometry works, which is not the easiest thing to show. But this certainly is, isn't. <laughs> this is really nice. If you get the chance to come and, come and see us, please do. And just since we're mentioning upcoming things, you might know that there are two concerts at Jodrell Bank on the 23rd and 24th of June, and there are still tickets available for the one on the 24th of June, which is a Sunday, headlined by Paul Weller. And it's been announced that now Craig Charles is going to come along as well. I am so good. I love Red Dwarf. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess he's going to be appearing in his capacity as a DJ, but maybe as a... I um, thought there was a Red Dwarf question and answer session. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, There we go. Which makes me even more sad that I can't be there. So come along to that if you can. There's still tickets available and we're hoping for nice weather as we've got at the moment. And now for a man whose gigs always sell out, it's The Night Sky with Ian Morrison. Well, The Night Sky for June 2012. To be totally honest, it's not dark for very long. And in Scotland, for example, it never really gets truly dark. Perhaps it's a good thing that the main highlight this month is in daytime. Well, let's look at the sky first. Well, when it finally does get dark, if you can stay up that late, you'll find that Leo is setting towards the west. It has the planet Mars lying below it, moving, in fact, across into Virgo. The brightest star you'll see just to the west of south is the star Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. Just to the left of that is a rather nice circlet of stars called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. And then we come to the constellation of Hercules. The four brightest stars make up what is called the keystone. And if you look up the right-hand side, about two-thirds of the way up from the bottom of the keystone, you should see a little fuzzy object with binoculars. And a telescope will show you that it's the globular cluster M13, probably the best that we can see in the northern sky. Coming further over, we begin to see the stars that make up our summer constellations. First of all, you'll see a bright star, Vega, in the constellation, small one, of Lyra the Lyre. Across from that, rising in the east, is Deneb, the brightest star of Cygnus the Swan. And below them, fairly low as it rises, is the star Altair in Aquila. And those three bright stars make up what is called the Summer Triangle. If you sweep upwards from Altair towards Vega, about a third of the way, with a pair of binoculars, you should come across a rather nice little asterism, 
Brocky's Cluster or the Coat Hanger. It looks like an upside-down coat hanger. And remember, if you go up towards the zenith from uh, Arcturus, you'll come to that rather lovely constellation, Ursa Major. Of course, the part that we know best is the plough. The central one of the handle is, in fact, Mizar. And if you look at that with binoculars, you should see it's a double star. The secondary star nearby is called Alcor. And a small telescope will show that, in fact, Mizar is itself a double star. And remember, of course, that Mirac and Dupe, the right-hand stars of the plough, are the pointers pointing up towards Polaris. So, what of the planets? Well, let's start with Jupiter. It passed behind the Sun on May the 13th. That's called superior conjunction. So, following that, you then see it in the pre-dawn sky. And about the beginning of June, it rises about 45 minutes before dawn. And you could glimpse it with binoculars just above the eastern horizon at magnitude minus 2. As the month progresses, it rises earlier, so at the very end of June, it actually rises two hours before the sun. So if you don't mind getting up very early, that's the time to actually observe it. It's about 34 arc seconds in diameter. The actual angular size doesn't vary an awful lot as the Earth goes around the sun because it's a fair way away. And it's lying between the Hyades and the Pleiades in the constellation of Taurus. Well, what about Saturn? Saturn reached opposition on April the 15th. That's when it's due south around midnight UT. And it's now seen about 20 degrees above the southeastern horizon after sunset in the constellation of Virgo, about 5 degrees above the first magnitude star Spica. It remains virtually in the same space in the sky during the month, as on the 26th of June, it halts its westward retrograde motion, that's due to the Earth coming round on the inside track, and begins to move eastwards. The magnitude is dropping as it gets further away from plus 0.5 to plus 0.7 in the month. And at the same time, of course, the angular size drops from about 18 to 17 arc seconds. Well, Mercury, we will see it this month. It has a fine after-sunset apparition during the latter half of the month. It sets about one and a half hours after the sun, shining at magnitude zero. But you probably need to use binoculars to search for it and don't begin to use those until the sun has actually set. But perhaps be there around sunset to see where the sun has set, and you'll know, looking up a little bit to the left, where to find Mercury. And there's a hint of also how to find it coming up in the highlights. Well, Mars, I mentioned, is lying below the body of Leo. It's past its best now. As it moves away, its magnitude fades from plus 0.5 to plus 0.8, moving, as I said, from Leo into Virgo on the 20th of June. The angular size is shrinking too, from about 8 arc seconds down to 6.6. So I'm afraid, unless you're on the top of Mauna Kea or something, you're not likely to see any surface markings. Well, Venus, we're going to come back to that, but it's at inferior junction on June the 6th. But you might just spot it along with Mercury, about six degrees above the northwestern horizon at the very beginning of June. By mid-June, it actually reappears in the pre-dawn sky and rises about half an hour before sunrise, when it's shining at magnitude about minus 4.1. It has a very thin crescent phase then, perhaps just 2% illuminated. As it pulls further away from the sun, we'll actually see it lying within the V-shaped Hyades cluster close to the star Aldebaran in Taurus. 
Well, finally, what about the highlights this month? Well, let's start with one that you can see the whole month. The lovely things called noctilucent clouds. They're very high in the atmosphere, perhaps about 80 kilometers, and they're lit by the light from the sun low below the northern horizon. So you see them the northwest, the north, the northeast. They appear as bright whitish blue wisps, and they're most obvious, in fact, after midnight, so you need to stay up fairly late. They appear to be more prominent now than in the past, and in fact, no one appears to have seen them before the mid-19th century. It's thought they may be associated with methane. There's now more methane in the atmosphere due to all sorts of reasons, cows being one of them, and that can disassociate into water vapour in the high atmosphere, allowing ice clouds to form around little dust particles, perhaps from meteorites coming in. So otherwise, it would be too dry up there. So maybe that's why we see them. But do look out for them, preferably to the north of a town or city, because you won't have the light pollution to contend with. On the 1st of June, as I mentioned, Venus and Mercury will be just 12 arc minutes apart. So again, you could spot those. Don't use binoculars until after the sun has set. And on the 3rd and 4th of June, we have another supermoon. We have one last month, or megamoon, some people call it. It's when the moon is full, close to what is called perigee, when it's very close to the Earth, it's closest. In fact, the orbit of the moon means that its angular size varies by about 12%. And that means the area that we see in the sky increases from when we see a, a full moon at apogee, furthest from the Earth, to perigee by about 30%. So it can look quite good. And obviously, try and see it rising, both of those nights, the third and fourth, because if you do, you'll have a wonderful view of what's called the moon horizon, when it appears to be much larger, apparently to us, than when it's higher in the sky. We suspect this is because we perceive the dome of the heavens above us to be a flattened rather than a hemispherical dome. So when we see the moon on the horizon, we feel it's further away subconsciously, and that tends to make us make it rather bigger in our mind's eye. On June the 21st, we have Mercury. I said it was going to be visible this month, and it's going to be very close to a very thin crescent moon, and that always looks rather nice. And if you spot the moon, they'll both be low down again. So look after sunset and uh, don't observe with binoculars until after the sun has set, as I keep on saying. But you may well see on the unilluminated sign of the moon what we call Earthshine. It's light reflected back from the surface of the Earth, from clouds, which illuminates very faintly the part of the moon that's not illuminated by the sun. And that can look rather lovely. On the 29th of June, we have Venus... Remember I said it was down in the Hyades cluster? Well, that'll be below Jupiter in the pre-dawn sky. So perhaps that's something to end the month with. Well, we do have one real highlight this month, but not a lot of chance to see it, sadly. On the 6th of June, at dawn, we have the second and last transit of Venus this century. You typically get two transits of Venus separated by around a 100 years or so, and they are eight years apart. And the last one was in 2004. And we had a lovely view of that out at the observatory at Jodrell Bank 
A picture I took there is actually on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website. The first contact, which is when the disk of Venus first touches the sun's limb, is at 11.10 BST, so it's night time, so we're not going to see much of the transit. And sadly, by the time the sun rises, the transit will be nearly over. You need to get pretty early. Depending where you are, sunrise varies. From Edinburgh, it's 04.30. Leeds, 04.38. London, 04.46. Belfast, 04.51. And Cardiff, 04.58. So to see as much of the transit as possible, perhaps about the last half an hour or so, you want to be as far north and east as you can get. Anyway, a little bit about the history. It was Johann Kepler, remember he produced the laws of planetary motion. He was the first person to predict a transit of Venus, in fact that of the 6th of December 1631, but he wasn't accurate enough in his time to know whether or not it would be observed, and in fact it wasn't observed in Europe, so there's no evidence of anyone having seen it. Using Kepler's tables, Jeremiah Horrocks, a curate at the church of Much Hool in Lancashire, north of Preston, calculated that a transit would occur on November the 24th, 1639. And that's in the old calendar, by the way. He observed it, the latter passed, and he also alerted a friend of his called William Crabtree, who observed it from Manchester. And in the town hall of Manchester, there's a wonderful mural showing Crabtree projecting the sun's image onto a white disc on the far side of his room. And that's the same way, of course, that actually uh, Horrocks observed it too. It's believed they were the only two people to witness it. Edmund Halley, who was the second astronomer royal, realised that Venus transits could be used to measure the distance between the Earth and Venus, and hence, of course, that of the Sun, to give what is called the astronomical unit. So the transits of Venus in 1761 and 1769, were observed across the world. Basically, you want to have observations in the south and in the north as far separated as possible, so that the path that Venus takes across the sun is slightly different. From the angular size between the two paths, you can actually measure the parallax and hence the distance of Venus and then the sun, because they're related by Kepler's third law. That's a very difficult measurement to make, and so it was decided they'd actually make measurements of the time when Venus just entered the whole of the Sun's disk, so the whole of the disk of Venus was seen against the Sun. So they wanted the time when that first happened, and then the time just before Venus left the whole of the Sun's disk. The problem was that an effect called the black drop effect meant it was actually very hard to estimate those times. And I think uh, when Cook observed it uh, with his astronomer Green, that they disagreed by about 12 seconds in time. So the measurements weren't all that accurate. And as I just mentioned Cook, the, perhaps the most famous of those expeditions was when Captain Cook went to Tahiti in 1769 on his world cruise. When he finished the observations, he had to open sealed orders, and they said he should continue going around the globe to try and discover what they called the then unknown southern continent, Terra Australis Incognita. And Australis, of course, means southern, so the southern land that was unknown. And in fact, 
having spent some time charting New Zealand, and in fact I hope to be going to one of the places where he moored his boat and set up observatory point where they made observations in the fjords of New Zealand just in a few days' time, um, he then went over and discovered the land that we now called New South Wales. Well, later on, in 1874, Australia and New Zealand were also prime locations at which to observe the transit, and uh, this was the first time that photographic observations were made, and the results did in fact give a uh, value of the astronomical unit not far off our modern value. And I might just point out that this is on the Jodrell Bank website, that one of the first precise measurements were made at Jodrell Bank by radar observing the planet Venus in the mid-60s. And in fact, we, I have to say, along with the Americans and the Russians, all got a value that agreed very, very closely. So since then, we've known the astronomical unit with very high precision, and it's nice that Jodrell Bank was involved. Well, it is our last chance, etc., the last chance any of us will have of seeing it. So have a go. Let's hope it's clear. And of course, you must never look directly at the sun. One way that I've used in the past is to mount a very small pair of cheap binoculars, you know the little handheld ones, at one end of a shoebox sticking through from the outside and project an image of the sun onto some white cardboard stuck on the inside of the opposite end of the box. And that actually works pretty well. You can, of course, buy eclipse glasses and you can also buy special filters that you can put in front of a telescope. But obviously never, ever look directly at the sun. Well, as I said, not many hours of darkness, but still one or two things to look for, and the very best of luck in hoping to observe the transit of Venus. Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's John Field with what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere night sky. Kia ora, and welcome to the June Jodcast from Wellington, New Zealand. Whilst those in the Northern Hemisphere are hopefully enjoying summer, we in the Southern Hemisphere are coping with the long nights and short days of our winter months. The highlight of June will have to be the transit of Venus, which will be the last for this century. On June the 6th, those facing towards the sun during the six hours of the transit will see the small black disk of Venus move slowly across the sun. A number of websites will be streaming a live view of the transit, so if you cannot see the sun, there will still be a chance to see it. The next transit is not until December 2117, so there will be a long wait. Fingers crossed for a clear day for all observers. June 20th marks the winter solstice here in the Southern Hemisphere. And in New Zealand, the dawn rising of the Matariki, Pleiades and Puanga Rigel coincides with the winter solstice. These stars are used by Māori throughout the country to mark the change of Timaramataka, the Māori annual calendar. Our southeastern sky is dominated by the zodiac constellation of Scorpius and following behind is Sagittarius the Archer. The red star Antares marks the heart of the Scorpion. This Arabic name means the rival of Mars. This red giant star is the 16th brightest in our night sky and is estimated to be 600 light years away. It is an estimated diameter 800 times greater than that of our sun. Antares is a faint companion star that is difficult to observe in small telescopes. To Māori and some Polynesian cultures, Scorpius is seen as a fishing hook, a much more familiar item in the South Pacific. One of the Māori names of Antares is Rehua and it marks the eye of the hook. Straddling the Milky Way, the region around Scorpius is home to a number of star clusters and nebulae which are easily observed. Nearby to Antares are two globular clusters, M4 and NGC 6144. 
The M prefix a number from Charles Messier's catalogue of 110 comet-like objects published in 1771. NGC is a new general catalogue of 7,840 objects compiled by John Dreyer and published in 1895. Along the curved body of the Scorpion there are a number of visual double stars that make a lovely sight to the unaided eye in binoculars or telescopes. Near the stinger of the Scorpion we find a naked eye cluster of stars that appears like a comet. Called NGC 6231, this is a cluster of stars similar in size to the Pleiades, but further away at 6,000 light years. The stars in this cluster are much brighter than those in the Pleiades, and if placed at the same distance, they would shine as bright as Sirius, making a stunning sight in our night sky. Also nearby to the Stinger, we find the star cluster M7. Appearing as a haze to the unaided eye, this cluster makes a nice view in binoculars or wide-field telescopes. Also in this region, but much fainter, is the butterfly cluster M6, at a distance of 1,300 light years away. The neighbouring constellation Sagittarius is host to a large number of nebulae, along with many open and globular star clusters. These range in size from large and bright to small and faint. The constellation represents an archer in Babylonian mythology, where it was seen as a multi-headed and multi-tailed centaur, with wings and a bow, a rather scary sight. Perhaps the most spectacular clusters in the nebulae are the Lagoon and Trifid. The Lagoon Nebula is also known as M8, and it gets its name as it appears in a compact cluster of stars surrounded by a circle of nebulosity with a dark rift. The western part of M8 is dominated by two bright stars of sixth magnitude. The eastern part has a loose cluster of stars. From studying the types of stars in the cluster, it is estimated that this is a young cluster. In this nebula, there are a large number of dark globules that are regions around forming protostars. At 4,000 to 6,000 light years away from our solar system, its dimensions are estimated at 110 by 50 light years. This is one of the few star-forming nebula visible to the unaided eye. The Trifid or M20 is seen as a small region of nebulosity near to the lagoon. With a 200mm or greater telescope, it should be possible to spot the dark lanes that split the nebulosity into three sections. The brightest stars in Sagittarius form an asterism called the teapot. Lambda Sagittarii marks the top of the teapot and is nearby to the globular cluster M22. It is one of the brightest in our night sky and can be easily found in binoculars. M22 is also amongst the most massive in our galaxy and one of the closest to our solar system. It was described by Messier in 1764 as a nebula containing no stars. William Herschel's better telescope allowed it to become the first to resolve the individual stars in this cluster. This cluster should actually appear brighter in our night sky, but due to the intervening interstellar material between us and the cluster, it appears much fainter. Due to the improvement in the quality of optics available today, even small telescopes should be able to resolve individual stars in this cluster. M23, an open cluster 2,000 light years away, consisting of over 100 stars being visible forming curving arcs and chains. M24 is a bright region of stars and is often called the small Sagittarius star cloud. This cloud includes a number of dark nebulae superimposed on a brilliant starry background. M25 is a bright open cluster with a number of deep yellow stars and 2,000 light years away. M55 at magnitude 7.4 is a bright globular cluster 16,000 light years away discovered in 1752. Binoculars will reveal it as a hazy star, and progressively larger telescopes will reveal more and more stars. Surprisingly, there is a galaxy visible. NGC 6822, and known as Barnard's Galaxy, resides in the northeastern portion of the constellation. It is an irregular dwarf galaxy that is best viewed in a wide-field telescope. The Milky Way is at its brightest, widest, and densest in this region. 
It has been seen as a river, sky road, or a bridge between the heavens and earth. The Arabians called it Al-Nar, the river. The Chinese refer to it as the river of heaven. To Mali it was called Te Ikarara, the long fish. Today we know it's the plane of a galaxy stretching around our sky. The region of Sagittarius is in the direction of the galactic centre, about 30,000 light years away. This region is known as Sagittarius Star A, and is where astronomers have detected a supermassive black hole. By watching the motion of the stars orbiting this region, astronomers estimate its mass is about 3 million times that of our Sun. Closer to home we have the planets Mars and Saturn in our evening sky. Jupiter is in the morning sky rising before the Sun, and it will be joined by Venus at the end of the month. A lunar eclipse commences on the evening of June the 4th and ends on the morning of June the 5th, and this follows the annual eclipse of the Sun on May the 20th. Unlike the solar eclipse, which was central, the eclipse of the Moon will be partial, with no more than 37% of the Moon's diameter in the umbral, that is, the complete shadow of the Earth. All stages of the eclipse are visible from New Zealand and most of Australia. In New Zealand, the eclipse commences at 8.48pm and ends at 1.18am. Maximum eclipse is at 11.03pm. We hope you have enjoyed our Jodcast and we wish you all clear skies. Thanks for that, John. And now on to the feedback. Uh, first off, we've had no real post, but Libby is away in Taiwan, look at her, and we're hoping that she will send us some actual post. On the email, we have had some virtual post, um, which means an email, uh, from Steve Cook, so thanks for that, and also Jürgen Nielsen in Denmark, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who told us that he's recently found the show and is trawling through the past episodes, and once he's done that, he's going to have a lot of questions to ask us. And also Alex Kokorin said he discovered the show when he retired and he says he loves it, which makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. So thank you very much for that. Thanks again to those on the forum who pointed out that the show notes had some duff links and for that Oscar Astronomer thing from May last year. Also on Facebook, Timothy Jeffries has also just discovered the podcast. Everyone's finding us. Yep, there's actually another one on Twitter as well called Trilobite59n3w. To paraphrase, he said that finding the Jogcast was like being a Victorian explorer discovering a lost city of gold. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you enormously for that. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget, of course, you can always send us post, and the address is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show. It just remains to say thank you very much to Patrick Sutton, Antonio Chrysostomu, Mark Thompson, and James Dunlop for the interviews. The editors were Adam Avison, Claire Bretherton, Melanie Jandra, and Mark Perver. And the producer, uh, again, it's me, Mark Perver. So until next time, jod on. Uh-huh.